Well, hey, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Thanks. We're going to be in Genesis 12 in just a few moments. If you want to go ahead and get a head start on where we're going, uh, you can flip to that spot. Some of you may even be reading ahead. You may notice at the bottom of your sermon notes is reading ahead for the next week. Um, That's for those of you who may be reading through the Bible this year or just maybe a renewed commitment to read scripture and you want to read along with where we're going to be going in the sermon series, um, that's just kind of a, a free gift to you to say, hey, here's where we'll be next week. Um, you don't necessarily have to, but I wanted to explain that to you. Um, so Genesis 12 is where we'll be in just a moment. Before we get there, a couple of announcements. It is, uh, it is Valentine's month at our house, and, uh, and so uh, we're not done yet. I'm not even done yet. Um, Valentine's dinner uh, celebration for us as a couple will be tonight, uh, but we're going to celebrate it first of all, here at the church. So if you're not aware, we do have a Valentine's dinner here tonight at 6 o'clock. The students um, are putting on a dinner, and you know they always do a great job. It'll be right here in this room at 6 o'clock. It is a chance for those of you husbands who, like me, have really not done anything more than maybe a cheap box of chocolates and a card that you signed as you were walking in the house. It's a chance for you to get out of the house. We have child care available. Uh, If you want to go the extra mile, uh, get childcare somewhere else, and after you experience your night here, maybe even go somewhere else together and have a have yogurt together or something just real special and intimate. So uh, that's uh, that we're doing that for you husbands tonight. Valentine's dinner six o'clock. You want to be here. And speaking of Valentine, uh, next Sunday, um, a good friend, Davinian Valentine, is going to be back preaching. I know you guys have enjoyed it in the past. Um, I, will, uh, I will be out, and he will be in, and uh, he's going to continue in the sermon series. He's right in sync with where we are, and, uh, and so the reading ahead in the sermon notes is for his message next Sunday. You're going to want to be here for this. Um, it's, uh, he's, he's a man who loves Jesus very, very much, and he loves God's word, and he does a great job of pulling God's word out in such a way that every time I'm around him, I think I fall more in love with Jesus. So uh, next Sunday, you're going to want to be here for that. Uh, last thing is this, if the Flint, Michigan... A uh, little commercial there caught your attention, and you're not sure what's going on. Um, our missions team is uh, is organizing this year a national missions effort, meaning that the team has prayed about and looked at opportunities to serve here in the continental U.S. places of great need. And as Billy prayed and spoke about, Flint, Michigan, is the least of these. It's a place of um, high poverty. Uh, high crime rate, meaning uh, drugs, prostitution, and everything that comes with that. Um, this really is a hopeless place uh, when you step into it. But we are excited to be able to go and serve and to help build some things. And, and more than that, to bring the hope of Jesus into that city, to work alongside a church that's planted there, uh, just to help them get some things going. So Flint, Michigan, later this summer, you saw the cost. On any of our announcements, just so you know, if you're not sure how to find out more information, info at solidrockfamily.com is the way to go. You can just uh, send an email to info at, it does go to somebody. They will navigate that email to where it needs to go to get you a response back. So, all right. If you are a visitor with us or you're new here at the church, just a little bit about where we are in the sermon series so you'll kind of know um, how, to, uh, how to navigate with us the message this morning. Uh, last year, I was thinking about this, last year we made it all 12 months with four sermon series. And, uh, and we, we basically did two all the way up to September and then we, we had two short ones there at the end. This year, the whole year is one long sermon series. And, uh, and what we're doing is we are walking through the story of the Bible. And we're not walking through every verse, uh, but we are walking through the story from cover to cover to see the beautiful continuity of God's story as he sends his son Jesus to be the rescuer of the nations. 
And so um, we are uh, past the introduction. We're in chapter 12 today. We're going to begin seeing the, the promise of this hope uh, coming into uh, clarity. And, uh, and so if you're new with us this morning, that's where we are. We just finished the first 11 uh, chapters of Genesis, and we're starting with Genesis 12, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, and maybe even into 5 and a few other verses, uh, to see this beautiful rescue mission launch to save the nations. So Genesis 12, let's get started. Now, one of the things that we're doing is that we are, um, we are tracing the story of God all throughout the Bible. So we're doing a lot of starting in the Old Testament and ending in the New Testament, seeing the continuity between the two. One of the reasons that we do that as Bible readers is because the New Testament is a beautiful commentary on the Old Testament. If you ever read through the Old Testament, you don't understand things, it's important to see, does the New Testament talk about this story or this person or this place, this event? Because if so, you can go to the New Testament and get some beautiful commentary on the Old Testament. And so we're doing that almost every week in here, not only to see the story, the storyline arching through the Bible, but also to get some commentary on some of the things going on in the Old Testament. We'll be doing that today with Genesis 12. Now Genesis 12 uh, serves as what I would call the beautiful theme of the entire Bible. I didn't always see it this way. I used to read Genesis 12 in and of itself, and it was just another story about the beginning of Abraham's entry into the story and some, some things God wanted to do through Abraham. But the more I get to know the Word of God, the more I see how these verses we're going to read today literally are the theme of the story. God's saying, I am going to rescue the nations. And he begins here in Genesis 12, speaking this to Abraham. So let's read these verses together, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. So we've just finished the city and the tower of Babel, okay? And now what's happening in the very next chapter is uh, Abraham. So, so humanity has been dispersed. Um, we, we might even say ethnicity, language diversity, cultural diversity has all kind of been birthed here in God separating people through the city of Babel event. Now just think about that for a moment. If God is, is, is working to build his kingdom here on earth, and his, if his desire were to build it through the strength of man, what a perfect opportunity he had in the last chapter to do so. I mean, man is already organizing himself. He's realizing how he can mass produce bricks. He's realizing how he can put those things together and network. Uh, civil engineering, building a city, thinking about flowing water and sewer. And, you know, I mean, man was on top of it. A perfect opportunity for God to go, that's what I'm looking for. Intelligent people, mighty men and women who, who will organize and think hard and, and help me build my kingdom. But God is on a different mission here. He's here to build a kingdom of the least of these, to call together to himself the weakest of these, the have-nots, the are-nots, the will-never-be-nots to be his people. And so he wasn't impressed with man in chapter 11, and he dispersed them all over the earth. And so now we pick up that story with Abraham in verse 1 of 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go. That word should catch your attention. Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land I will show you. So we get to try to put our, our, our minds into this event and what's going on and what God is saying to, to Abram. Um, so first of all, God says, I want you to go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house. Think about what that would mean for this man. Okay, so he... Uh, is living in a time in human history where security and identity was built in living in clans. 
So whoever the oldest living male was literally kind of served as the king of that village, that tribe, that clan. It may have just been a couple of generations. Okay, and so what he's, God is saying to Abraham is, I want you to leave the authority of your father's house, the authority of your father's clan. I want you to also leave the security that's provided in that, right? Things are predictable, the wisdom of your father. When you, when you come across something you don't know how to conquer, you can ask dad. I want you to, to leave all of that, and I want you to go to the place I'm going to show you. Now, the, where he's going is left pretty vague, isn't it? And so one of the most significant things that I think God is saying to Abram at this point in time is I want you to leave all that you trust and I want you to trust in me. And so in this first expression to Abraham, he's speaking to him and saying, think about all the things that you trust, Abram. Think about it. Being familiar with the scenery, being familiar with how to feed and water your animals and take care of things, being familiar with the people, the security that's providing and knowing what you'll expect tomorrow. I want you to leave all that and I want you to trust in me. And then more specifically, God says, here's what I'm going to do, verse 2. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now that sounds pretty good. Verse 3 says, more specifically, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, here it comes, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What did God just do in this previous chapter? Man was unified, one family, one identity, one culture, one ethnicity. God dispersed them. So now we have all these little ethnicities birthing really as little families. And, and, that's, and so we see that the descendants of Ham begin to migrate towards Egypt and northern Africa. And we know the descendants of Ham were the ones who really were the inhabitants of Africa. And we see man dispersing and ethnicity being born here. And so right at the beginning of this dispersal, God is making a beautiful promise that he's going to rescue all the nations. And as it unfolds, literally what he's doing is he's going to pull all the nations back together as one in the end. Now right here for, for Abram, does he have all those details? No. Because the theme of what God is saying is, Abram, trust me, and I'm going to do something great through your descendants. Now Abram had all kinds of reasons to not believe God and to not trust God. I mean, for starters, his wife was barren. And only that, he was up in age. I think he's 75 at this time. Number of reasons why um, Abram should have spoke back to God and said, maybe you've got the wrong Abram, you know. Maybe you meant, uh, you know, the Abram that's in the next village over. I hear a lot of good things about him. Maybe you meant him. A number of reasons why Abram should have responded to God, right, and said, I don't think you meant to pick me. But then verse 4 says, so Abram, what did he do? He went. Now, we know from reading the story where he went to. But at this point in time, Abram doesn't know necessarily where he's going. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot, his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. I could spend a whole message here um, on... Uh, 
on, on retirement, you know, and the American mentality that there's a certain place in life where I just get to kind of check out. Um, I, I love that we have folks here who are at that retirement age who haven't just checked out on life, still involved in what's going on. Here we've got Abram, 75 years old, right, and this is when God initiates his calling, if you will, right, the time where we would be checking out, he's checking in and loading up all his stuff and heading out. All right. So now we're going to let the New Testament give us some commentary and explain to us some of the things going on here. Now this passage we just read, those first three, four, five verses of Genesis 12, um, probably are one of the more quoted or referred to passages in the New Testament. Okay, So we don't have time to go over all that the New Testament's going to say. That tells us some things, right? This is a very, very key passage in our Bibles. We're going to look, though, specifically starting in Hebrews 11 at some things that the New Testament does say about Genesis 12 so you and I can get a better handle on what God's saying to Abram that we might even understand what he might be saying to us today. So um, in Hebrews chapter 11, we get a, a chapter that's sometimes referred to as the Hall of Faith. Get these, uh, these men and women of the Old Testament who displayed faith in God. But I think more accurately, this is really just a chapter on faith and the people that are included are just used as examples. It's not about highlighting these people as heroes as much as it is explaining how faith works. Okay? And so in this describing how faith works, Abraham, or Abram, becoming Abraham next week, you'll see, um, is one of the key examples in the Bible of what faith looks like. Now, don't lose that. Okay? Don't lose that. I think that's going to encourage you at the end of the message. Um, you know how we can sometimes blow people up to be bigger than life and bigger than they actually are? Okay, Abram's one of those guys. While he's such a great example to us, I think one of our best examples is, is his faith and his faith in his weakness. And so we'll get there at the end, but don't, so don't blow him up too big just because the Bible is using him as a great example. So that being said, let's look at what Hebrews 11 says about him, starting in verse 8. So, so far in this chapter, faith has been defined um, the author of Hebrews has kind of walked through that same lineage that we walked through over the last six weeks and ends up in eight at Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed God. That tells us something. So when Abraham went, it was because of faith. There's no indication that he had a conversation with God on what do you mean by that? How is this going to work? Show me on paper first and then I'll go. Give me the manual. Give me the map. He went on what? Faith. So when we read Abraham went and his family with him, he went on faith. So by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place where, that he was to receive as an inheritance. Okay? So we know geographically that what happens is, um, is Abraham travels from uh, up north of Israel down through Canaan, down through what would be modern day Israel, um, what would become the, the promised land in your Old Testament. He travels down through through there. And so he's literally seeing this land that would become the geographical region of, of Israel. Didn't really know it at the time. He's just following God. God's walking him down this journey down through Canaan. And so um, it says that he, um, by faith, is, he went to the place that he was going to receive his inheritance. Now, uh, the next phrase says, and he went out. So if we're learning about what this story has to do with everything else in the Bible, we're seeing that faith is a pretty big theme here, right? The fact that Abraham trusted God and just went. 
The first thing that I learn about faith from Abraham's story is this, that faith will give birth to obedience. Okay? Now, let's be cautious. Please don't invert that. I think we live in a mindset here that somehow our obedience will cause God to like us more or give us more or bless us more. It's not at all what we're saying. But we're seeing that the faith that's defined in the Bible, the faith exemplified in Abraham, it produced action. That's how we know that he believed God, right? What if Abraham had said in the very next line, God, I trust you, God, I believe you, and then he didn't go anywhere, right? Is, is that faith? That's, that, those, are, those are false promises, false words, right? It's false statements. So we know this, that faith produces an action. Now, but let's don't flip that and become action-oriented people trying to gain faith or prove our faith. So faith leads to an action. So he went out, the very next phrase says, not knowing where he was going. Faith implies trust. Very clear to see, right? I mean, the men in the room, can you imagine? God speaks to you and says, hey, I'm calling you to go somewhere. And by the way, I'm not really going to tell you where it is. But I do want you to load your family up and go. Well, how's that conversation going to go with Hallie, my wife, right? I mean, hey, God's calling us to, to go. Oh, really? Where? I don't know. Okay, well, when you know, right, you, you let me know and we'll talk about it. No, no, no. We're going to go ahead and pack. We're going to go ahead and put the house on the market. We're going to go ahead and get ready. And then we're just going to start following God. That's a lot of trust, isn't it? I mean, that's a lot of trust, And so faith implies an obedient action. It implies trust. Verse 9, by faith, this is about Abraham, he went to live in the land of the promise, as in the foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him to the same promise. Now this is son and and grandson here. And so this heirs of the promise is is a beautiful, uh, it gives a beautiful commentary on the Old Testament. So like the image of God is placed in Adam, We just read a few chapters back that this image of God was passed on to Seth through all of his lineage, all the way down to Lamech, to Noah, through Noah's son Shem, all the way down to to Abram. So we know that lineage is really important for passing things on. Now this promise that God's making to Abraham, we're, we're reading here that that gets passed on. That this promise God made to Abraham is literally gonna be a baton that gets passed from generation to generation. So so Isaac, his son, grows up living uh, under the roof a mobile roof, a moving roof of, of, a, of his dad. Uh, and so he's growing up, he's living as a recipient of this promise. And think about that. Like you grew up in a house. Um, if, you, uh, if you grew up in a house with, with dad um, or mom and dad or whatever version of that you may have grown up in, their career dictated a lot. What house you live in, what neighborhood you live in, sometimes what city you live in. Some of you, military, what country you lived in. Okay, so, so much about what mom and dad do and what mom and dad believe determines kind of that, that environment you grow up in. So, like, think about that. I mean, Isaac grew up with a dad who followed and trusted God. That was the environment he grew up in. Jacob, the grandson. So they grew up not just as heirs to the promise, but they literally grew up in the culture of this promise. Dad, why are we moving again? Because, son, we're following God. They were heirs with him to the same promise. Verse 10, for he was looking forward. This is Abraham now. Think about this. He was looking forward to the city. Does that sound familiar? 
what just happened in chapter 11. Man was building a city. Abraham's still well aware of the tower and the city of Babel and what's going on. And it says that now Abraham, he's looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is who? God. You see the connection here? So Abraham is saying, oh, I'm going I'm to trust God. I trust him so much that I'm going to move my family. We're going to pack up and we're going to follow. We're going to be obedient. But not only that, we're going to put our hope in him. Now, there's, there's more here that we won't have a chance to read, but look at verse 16, because here's what ex, what ex, what's explained so far. The author of Hebrews says, now, all these people, they didn't all inherit or receive the promise, but they lived following the promise in their lives. And they then died, not having received the fullness of their promise, but they died holding on to the promise that God made. Think about that. Like, it's a long time before Israel is established from this point in human history. But Abraham followed God as this promise unfolded, and he lived and he died holding on to that promise. And so the author of Hebrews is going to say that, um, that these all died in faith. So verse 16 says, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared, prepared for them a city. So as God is making this proclamation moving forward that I'm going to establish my kingdom, um, there is central to that kingdom a city, right? And the name of that city is Jerusalem. And so that's why Jerusalem is such a huge uh, place in the Old Testament, especially when you get into the, to the Psalms. And David's writing these Psalms about Jerusalem like she's actually a person and, and almost has, has some kind of deity to her. Like, Jerusalem is huge. Well, we know what God does at the end. He establishes what? A new Jerusalem, a city whose foundation and builder is who? God. So what man tried to do in Genesis 11, God is going to establish forever in, in Revelation 21 and 22 in the new Jerusalem. And so we begin to understand, oh, that's why the city of Jerusalem was such a, a key place and a key name in the Old Testament. These people were looking forward to that city. They saw themselves as strangers in the land. Regardless of what culture or national boundary they had, they felt like aliens. Does that sound like the New Testament? Citizens of a distant country, citizens of a distant city, and they all lived and they died in faith. And they died in hope. Now think about that. Galatians chapter 3 is going to explain to me a little bit about this hope. Beautiful passage. We're not going to read the whole chapter. I just want to read 7 through 9. But just something else significant that um, Paul has already written that, that I think is going to help, help us understand some things. Abraham was not commended by God, he was not recognized by God, and he was not written about in your Bible because he was faithful. He was commended, he was written about, he is brought before us as an example because of his faith, not because he was faithful. There's a difference there. Are you tracking with me? Faithful implies deeds, works. And so one of the things that Paul is going to say before we get to the verses we're going to read in Ephesians 3 is this. If you're going to live by works and by good deeds, then you know what? Your suffering is in vain. 
Think about that. Suffering doesn't make sense if you're living by works and good deeds, does it? Because here's what I hear when I'm suffering. I'm not doing a good job. I need to work harder, right? God's punishing me for something I did wrong or for not doing something I should have done right. And Paul will say, but if you live by faith, your suffering serves to grow you and mature you and refine you to the point where James says, consider it joy when you face suffering. God is using that to mature you if you live by faith. If you live by works, suffering is vain. Suffering's of no use, is it? You're working to get away from suffering. And so then we enter into verse 7 where Paul says this. This is Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith. Hang on to that phrase. Those of faith. Not of faithfulness, good works, good deeds, working hard, being perfect, but of faith who are the what? Sons of Abraham. Okay. Here's, what, here's what's happening in your Bible. Mankind as, as a whole is living basically as one people group until we get to Genesis 11. God disperses the ethnicities. But at the same time, God is building for himself a kingdom. So, so he's got two, well, he's got all the options he wants, but practically speaking, he's got two options. One, he can pick a family and just build a kingdom there. Right? Pick a culture and ethnicity and say, you know what, I'm just going to pick the Israelites and they're going to be my kingdom. Or he can somehow in the end bring it all back together as one. This is what we read about in Acts 2 where the Holy Spirit falls and now all of a sudden all these different ethnicities are understanding the languages. Right? They're hearing the gospel in their own language. What's God doing? He's choosing from every nation a kingdom. You see the difference? Okay? So... Here's how we know who the children of Abraham are. This is a really important part of your New Testament because after Jesus dies on the cross, he says, and he resurrects, he says, go to all the nations. Well, there was a problem here because by this time, the children of Abraham were really feeling like God's only people. And they were God's chosen people for his mission, not for the end. Are are you you tracking with me there? Okay, this is going to apply to us in the church, I think. So the mindset at the time that the Galatians is being written is this. How can all those people who aren't children of Abraham be loved by God, be considered part of God's family? I mean, can't we just like let them in the yard and not in the house? That's the way they were being treated, the Gentiles. And so what what Paul is saying here then is so significant. Know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Do you understand the, the power of that phrase? Like at other places, your Bible says, God can raise up children of Abraham out of rocks. Like quit being so boastful. Now that begins to land on us as churchgoers, right? We so easily slip right back into this mindset. And we have pity on the lost. Pity on those who aren't saved. And that's all we ever have is pity. Oh, you just don't understand. I just feel so sorry for you. When, when, when Jesus would say, no, press into that person's life. Love them into the kingdom. Share the gospel with them. Share them why you have hope. Don't just pity them. You see how we quickly fall into that mindset of, right, we've got a missions team, don't we? Don't we have an evangelism team that kind of shares the gospel and we just show up to, to sing and, right, and to be God's people? This is what's going on here. And so Paul says, I'll tell you who the children of Abraham are, the children of that promise. They're the children of faith, those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, okay, so verse 8, 
of Galatians 3 is going to say something so boldly that it explains really most of our Bible. Okay, this is what your Bible is about, verse 8. And the scripture, that's the Old Testament, okay, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, let everybody else, not just into the yard, but into the house, okay, justify the Gentiles by what? Faith. He preached the gospel beforehand to who? Abraham. So if I stop right there, I'm like, whoa, I didn't see that. Did you? Maybe it's in chapter 15 or 16, so I keep reading, I keep reading, I keep reading. But if I'll continue reading in Galatians 3, here's what God says. He preached the gospel to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. We've read that today. Paul is saying, that was the gospel. I'm going to collect for myself and call to myself a people from every nation. And so to Abraham, it was just get up and go. Pack up your stuff. Leave your security. Trust me. I'm going to take you to a new land. And oh, by the way, I'm going to bless all nations through you. And Abraham believed God. And he was considered to be righteous. That's beautiful. That's what the story of the Bible is about. Right there. I mean, right there at the very beginning and right here at the end, right? This is what your your Bible is about. The unfolding of God's kingdom, the proclamation of the good news of his gospel, that God not only loves the people of the nations, he's going to literally, like I've said before, unzip the fabric of time, step into our world, live a perfect life, die on the cross, bear the weight of the sins of all the nations, and take those sins to the grave, and raise victoriously from the grave, leaving sin along with its punishment there. And then he's going to commission his followers to do what? Now you go take this hope to the nations. And so Paul says, God was preaching the gospel to Abraham back then. Now think about this. It's so hard for us to understand from a, from a timeline or a temporal understanding how an eternal God can interact with the timeline. Because then we go, well, if Jesus dies on the cross thousands of years later, how did he save Abraham? Okay? You, you know what this does for me? First, it kind of it boggles my brain. I try to wrap around. Then I settle in this. Like God is so, so confident in his self. That literally when he's speaking this to Abraham, he is fully confident of the plan. That's how. As though it had already been done. Think about that. In this moment, as God is saying these things to Abraham, he's looking forward to the cross and sending his son, not as an option or something that might happen. Right? I mean, that's how confident your Bible is. saying God is saying, I am going to do this. I am going to rescue the nations. It's as good as done. An eternal God can say that, right? I can't say that. I can say, I hope to wake up at such and such time tomorrow and accomplish these tasks tomorrow. I hope to do that. But God looks into the future and he's speaking to Abraham and says, my rescue is as good as done. That increases my confidence in God. He didn't send Jesus here to earth with a plan saying, I, I hope this works out for you. I mean, if you get to the end and you just want to pull the, you know, the, uh, the parachute on this thing, the eject button, just send up a prayer, Jesus, and I'll, I'll pull you out of it. No, I mean, at the very end, Jesus is like, God, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And then what does he do? Then he submits and he yields to God, to God's plan. 
Nevertheless, your will, your plan be done. You've been, you've been speaking this mission for thousands of years. You see how beautifully confident God is in himself? Now that's going to contrast with our lack of faithfulness here now in the story. Before we get there, I want you to see something in Romans uh, chapter 4. Again, every one of these chapters that I've pointed out today, if you read the whole chapter, you're going to get beautiful commentary on Abraham and what's going on here. I'm just pulling out a few verses. And so if you go to Romans chapter 4, start in 13, just so we know what's being talked about here. This is Romans chapter 4. If you're in Galatians, it's back to the left. If you make it back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've gone too far, go back to the right. So Romans 4, 13, here's what Paul's talking about. For the promise to Abraham. So automatically we know what? He's talking about Genesis 12. Okay? For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. That's big. That's the nations. Heir of the world. It did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now here's what's going to be incredibly important for us. If you go back to Genesis 12, we left off with faithful Abraham, didn't we? We left off with believing, trusting, hoping Abraham to the point where he's like, he's packing up shop and going. But if you'll keep reading, I mean just really quickly on, guess what happens? So they're out traveling and they get close to Egypt. And Abraham, I don't know why, but he looks over at Sarah and is like, you're kind of hot. Um, I'm kind of worried. We're going to roll into Egypt. They're going to see how pretty you are. I'm toast, right? I mean, they're, they're going to they're gonna kill me. So guess what he does? He said, tell you what, let's just lie. Let's just lie. Let's lie to Pharaoh, say you're my sister. Not only, now, now not only will he not kill me, he'll kind of honor me because I'm like your older brother, right? And so this is what happens. And then if you know, God afflicts Pharaoh. He's like, what in the world have you done? And he's busted for the lie. Okay? So this is why I say there's a difference between faith and faithfulness. And this is what gives us hope, right? Faith does not imply perfect obedience. It implies obedience. It implies actions. It implies a response. But let's not get caught in the trap that I must be perfect or I don't have faith in God. Here's what faith does in your imperfection. Faith says to you, God still loves you. His grace is sufficient. Come back to him. That's what faith says to us in our weakness and our mistakes. Faith doesn't cause God to go, you know what? All bets are off. Promise, pulling it. Never mind. God says, no, I want you to respond to my promise in faith, which means there will be obedience. There will be action. There will be trust. There will be hope. But it's not a perfect obedience Right? That keeps faith alive. Matter of fact, faith actually, I think, grows in our weakness when we, when we do mess up and we come back to God and his goodness. And we allow his grace to wash over us once again. Just like parents you do with your children. And you pull them back to you. You restore relationship with them. You clean them up. You wipe the tears. You bandage the wound. You, right? you pull them back into fellowship and you, you love them. And that love doesn't diminish, does it? it if anything, it grows you need to hear that today your relationship with God according to the gospel according according to scripture is not based on your good works or your good deeds period period 
faith alone. Abraham was commended as, as we're going to see, righteous, perfect, because of his faith. Verse 16. This is why it depends on faith, okay? This is what Paul is explaining. This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. Think about that. If the promise were contingent on Abraham being perfect, what hope was there for Isaac? Right? I mean, Abraham's walking in and out of faithfulness. What, what hope is there for his children? If faith is contingent on you being perfect, what hope is there for your kids? Parents, you can, you can put on the facade. We can put on the facade on Sunday and walk in here and pretend like we have it all together. Let's just be honest. Our kids see us in our deepest moments of weakness. If your hope is in your perfect actions, what hope is there for your kids? Abraham's hope was not in perfect actions. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on what? Grace. So when God hands his promise to Abraham to pass down, this promise is literally resting on grace from generation to generation. Some are gonna almost get it right and some are gonna get it devastatingly wrong from here going forward. I, don't, I wouldn't say that anybody gets it right. Right? I mean, go through any example. David, we're gonna use him? The man after God's own heart? I mean, really? We're gonna throw him out as an example of perfect faithfulness? No. But he was a man of faith. And in his weakness, where did he turn? Back to God and repentance. And so this promise is passed down from Abraham to generation to generation on grace. It rests on grace. And it becomes a guarantee to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of of the God in whom he believed, who gives life and death and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I love verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope. So you want to get to a challenging place in your faith journey with God? I love that verse. In hope, he believed against hope. He believed against the odds. He believed against what didn't make sense. So moms and dads, let me say this. If, If you want your children to, to model your faith, maybe even be more, be, to have more faith in God, right? You want your children to grow up and be people of faith, okay? Here's where they're gonna see that. They're gonna see that in your faith. You want your children to love Jesus? I do. Oh, especially with number two, <laughs> right? We're praying for his salvation. Let him get it at an early age. I mean, 21 months, let's save this kid, right? We want him to love Jesus, He's not going to love Jesus because of our perfect morality. If we could be, right? I mean, he's not. He's going to love Jesus because of our faith, because of our love for Jesus, and that we've provided him a home that understands and gets grace. That's challenging, isn't it, parents? So, in hope he believed against the hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. 
Remember when we talked about Abraham from the beginning? He had plenty of excuses. But when he thought about his own body, how old he was and how barren his wife was, those things didn't weaken his trust or his faith in who God is. So his body, as Paul will say, which was as good as dead, because he was about 100 years old, um, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's wound, 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. I love that. Did, did Abraham sometimes struggle with trusting God? Read the story. He, right? He ditches Sarah and takes her maidservant. Like, he does waver at times. But no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You see where the, the faith is? Abraham was not holding faith in himself. His faith was in God and God making a promise. God said it, it's going to happen. And that ended it for him. This is what's going to happen. Verse 22 says, that is why his faith was counted to him as what? Righteousness. Perfectness. Holiness. No blemishness. Think about that. You want to be without sin or error or guilt or shame? You want to be perfect before God? Faith and faith alone. Verse 23, I love this, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, period. Listen, listen to me, please. No greater tra- tragedy than to come into a church, maybe even be involved in church your whole life and not get the message of the scriptures we just read. You will not be saved by being good. You don't get on the dean's list in God's kingdom for being almost perfect. Are you hearing me? God is calling to himself the nations, but as we learn from Jesus, he's calling the sick, he's calling the weak, the poor, the oppressed, Paul says, he, don't forget who you were. God, remember how God chose us to be his people? From the have-nots, the are-nots, the will-never-bes? Wow, that gives me hope, folks, it does. I am so tempted as a pastor to get caught in this I have to be perfect trap. I have to have grace for my weakness. Newsflash, I, I'm not perfect. I'm not So what do I do in my weakness? I excuse it and go, eh, no big deal. No. My sin and my weakness brings me back to my knees like David, back to repentance. This is the gospel of the Bible. 